You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Thank you, Adam. Man, it is good to be here. I, I actually got to, if you've been around a while, got to preach Mercy's Door right before COVID. It was December of 2019, let's say. And uh, you were in the high school. I remember that, walking into the high school then and, and uh, got to be a part of that. And, and I, I want you to see this picture because it's part, of, part of it will help you tie some uh, connection to my family. So do you have slides? Didn't get in slides, but the picture didn't come? Didn't come through? Bummer. So pretend there's a picture up there because it was really, really uh, going to be cool. Um, so just pretend. And what's in that picture is now, I, I was married in 1990, so we've been married 33 years. Um, my wife's sitting over here, Fran, and uh, our family began like most families do. And I say most because I realize there's exceptions to this, but most families begin because two people like start to like each other, and then they tell each other they love each other, and then they do this really crazy thing. They stand before a bunch of people and say, I'm forsaking all other loves for you. Now, that's how most families start, and I say most because I, 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 I believe somewhere out there in the world there are people that get married that has zero to do with love, and it has to do with other things, but most people get married, and they stand in front of a whole bunch of people like this, and they say, I'm forsaking all other people to love you, and so families get started on this idea of love that is forsaking others so that two can become one, and that's where families begin. Families don't begin when you have a kid. So those of you that are kids understand this. Your family didn't begin when you showed up in the world. Way before you were a twinkle in dad's eye or a thought in mom's eye, family began when two people standard, stood at an altar. And so my family began in 1990. Not changed in 1997 when Will was born. We had seven years from being married to having kids, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Miscarriages and God's plan, and we thought we were being wise. We we're going to wait to have kids, and you know, you'd have zero to do with when you have kids. That's God. And uh, seven years later, we had this son named Will, who, who's, I guess, the best way I can describe him. He's the complete opposite of me. So whatever you think about me when this is done, he's the opposite of that in a better way. And so he is that person that grew up with us, and was, when you're a parent, when your kids start talking when they're really young, there's something in you that thinks, this is awesome. Well, he was that kid that never shut up his whole life. Like from the moment he started talking, he never stopped talking. That's Will. About three years later, we had another son named Cade, and so we had two, two boys. And what's happened in that amount of time is that our families changed a lot. When, you, when there's just two of you loving each other, that is that is super difficult if, you've, if you're married and you realize how hard marriage is to love someone because you're a super selfish person and you think it's going to be easy because you're forsaking all other loves, but then all of a sudden, like, God wants you to love someone selflessly, which is really difficult because you're not selfless, you are selfish, and then God makes it super apparent how selfish you are because he gives you a kid. And then you realize, like, I like my sleep more than I like human beings and especially little ones that aren't pets, because you can lock a dog in a cage and put him on the far side of the house and let him scream his head off. Doing that to children can get you in a lot of trouble with the law and other places and other people. And so you do kids differently, and all of a sudden love gets challenged differently, and the love in our family changed. 
how we started loving each other and how we started loving kids, and all of a sudden you, you just love differently. And so our, our family's love kind of transformed, and I don't know that it got better or got worse, it just changed. And so that was 26 years ago that Will was born, so 33 years of this now. Well, what's happened in the last couple of years is Will met this girl named Lane, about three years ago, they stood at an altar, and they did this really crazy thing where they said, we're forsaking all others, and they started their own family. And when people from your family start their own family, it makes the love of your family really weird, because all of a sudden, now they love someone else more than they love you, which parents, you can't believe that will ever happen. If you have little kids, you're like, they're always going to love me the best, and then they get 13, you realize, maybe not. Maybe they're going to love someone else more than you, and that's probably a good thing. But they started loving each other, and all of a sudden, they don't want to be with us as much as we want to be with them. How crazy is that? And so there's this picture that's not up there, but there's this picture of Will and Lane married. And then my youngest son got married just about a month ago today, a month ago tomorrow. They got, I got to marry the two of them in Texas. Now, neither one of our kids live near us. One lives in Atlanta, and the other lives in Texas. Um, and both are married now, so our family has not only changed in, like, numbers. We have two daughters in our family now, which we don't see a whole lot, but we have two daughters, Lexi and Lane. They're, they love Jesus, which is awesome, and I think they actually probably love Jesus more than they love our sons, which is even better. And so if you're praying for, kid, for kids in your family, pray they find someone that actually loves Jesus more than they love your, your son or your daughter. That's a really good thing when that happens. And so we have this changing dynamic in our family because it's grown, but also it's the love that, that we entered into this thing has had to change because now we're having to love girls. We've never had to love girls in our house. I've, I've loved a, a lady in my house, but I've never had to love a girl. Like I've never, Fran was like the queen. When, and other girls come into your house, two things happen. Your house smells a lot better. And then secondly, all of a sudden, you just have to love differently because you love boys like this. What up? You don't love your daughter-in-law like that. Now, Lane grew up with all boys, so she gets that. But that's just not how you love the daughter-in-law, right? I'm sorry, I hope I didn't, like, I know that your brother pushes you hard all the time like that anyway. And you just love girls differently, right? And so I'm learning how to love girls, and I'm, they're learning how to love me, I'm sure. And it's just, can I just say this? Like, the love of a family is just really beautiful, but it's also just really different and hard. And it's really hard to define, especially as it changes. But what I want you to hear is this. The way God designed love in a family to be is you were supposed to be able to love your family differently than anybody else in the world. And that is, you, family is supposed to be a place where you know that there is love and you get to love each other from being loved, not for being loved. Let me, let me make that really clear. Like, there are people in your life you realize, if I don't love you the right way, you're not going to love me back. If I don't serve you first, if I don't give to you, if I don't do the things you want me to do, then love is kind of iffy, and you step in and out of love with people like that, right? And so you always feel like you're loving them for something, for their approval, for their pleasure, for their time. But family's supposed to be that place where you love people, and you don't have to worry about getting something back. It's supposed to be you just get to love from love, not for it. Now, I realize that's not true in all our families, and I realize sometimes you feel like you got to please everybody in your family, but that's the way God designed it. And that's the way God designed his family. And what we're going to see in this text today is not only just that your identity has been changed in Christ where you become a part of his family, but he's really calling you and I to learn to live from his love and not for it. 
and it changes everything. And you may have heard that phrase a ton of times in your life, but the moment you and I begin to actually start embracing what it's like to be able to live from God's love, it changes how we follow Christ first, changes our love for Him, and then it changes how we love each other. So let's dive into this very first verse here. Review with me. If you've got your Bibles, let's jump into this. If not, it'll be on the screen. First verse says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Draw your attention in three words here. See what kind of love. It's the first word I want to draw your attention to. The Father has given to us, given is a second word, that we should be called children. I'm going to start the end of this sentence and say this. God has given you a new identity, a new family. He calls us children of God. And it's not just a metaphor. It says that's what we are. You are a son, a daughter of God. Someone walked up to me a minute ago, chaplain over here just retired and said, tell me about yourself, what makes you special? And I was like, man, I... And what wanted to come flying out of my mouth, but I was just going to sound like the sermon was, well, I'm a son of the king. Like, cause that's the only thing that's never going to change about me. I used to have hair. Not anymore. I used to play basketball. When I walk into basketball gyms like this, like everything within me wants a basketball. I don't usually pick one up because then it starts to hurt when I start to dribble them and shoot them and jump because everything in my body hurts now because I'm 59 when I like get off the ground, like that doesn't feel good. But there's things inside me that feels like an 18 year old. I'm like, I I'm not a basketball player anymore. I'm a dad, but that's changed. I don't have kids in my house anymore. Let me ask you, what, what identifies you? What are you what, when people know you, what do they say? Like, well, and usually you're known by what you do, right? Like, well, I run fast, I'm an athlete. I've birthed kids, I've raised kids, I'm a mom. I work at a bank, I'm a banker. I what? I teach students. I'm a teacher. And so people know you based on what you do. That's how the world defines us. And I want, I want you to hear this. Like your identity in Christ first is a child of God. Second, you got that identity because it was given to you by God. Notice what it says in the scripture. He has given it to you and he gave it to you from his love, which, and I want you to hear this. This is the beautiful thing about God's love. He takes his love and he actually gives his love to you. He didn't give you the right to become a child of God just because he loved you. He made you a child of God by giving his love to you. And what we're going to see today is there's a big difference. And let me just say the truth this way, just, just to help un unpack it of how we're going to walk out of this today. That we're sons and daughters. When you go to the next slide, it tells us this about who we are. It says that we are sons and daughters. Did do you have slides that I sent you or no? Do I just need to keep talking? So you didn't get the slides I sent you? Mm -mm. My bad. So pretend like there's slides up there and I'll just tell you what they are. How about that, huh? So here's, here's the truth I want you to hear today. We are sons and daughters. And this is the biggest thing I want you to hear. You, you and I have the opportunity to live from God's love because of the love that he's actually put into us. As opposed to, and this is the opposite of how we mostly live in our relationship with God, we live for his love most of us, most of our life. In other words, we do this. If I do the right things, if I, if I obey the commands that are in the scripture, then God will approve of me. And so at some point in time, you realize like my approval before God isn't based on what I do, and that's how you and I get saved, is that we realize it's what Christ did that makes us approved before God, and so we believe Christ, we trust him, and we say, hey, you know what? I want to believe that you are actually the one who can make me your, your son and your daughter. In John 3.16, most of you know this verse says this, for God so loved the world, what? Listen to what he did. He gave. 
And he gave us so that if you and I believed, and the word isn't to intellectually agree with God, the word means this, that I've actually trusted God. Most of you walked in here earlier, and this chair was sitting here that was cleaned earlier for you. You guys don't know this, but some gentleman's in here every morning cleaning these chairs for you, praying over them. How beautiful is that? I hope you guys realize the love that goes into what goes on this morning. But most of you just didn't walked in here and did this. You just sat down. Now, have you ever seen somebody sit in a chair that didn't work? Kind of funny, isn't it? Like they sit and the chair goes, the legs go out and they end up on the floor. And we, if you have your camera out, ends up on Funniest Home Videos, those kind of moments. And the reason that happens is because people trust the chair. They don't know the chair. They've never met the chair. Most of you didn't walk up and do this and test the chair. You just placed your whole body on it and trust it. And that's what it means to trust something. It means to set yourself fully on it. In this case, a chair doesn't matter because if you fall, guess what? It's embarrassing. It might hurt a little bit, but it, it doesn't change anything about you. But to believe in the Son of God is to trust your soul to Him in two ways. One, that He's king over your sin, that the sin that separates from you from God is actually not great enough to separate you from God based on what Jesus has done, so you're trusting that in who he is and what he's done, he's reconciled you to God, he's like made you to be with God, and here's the reason. He's made you right with God so that you can be with God. This is what it means to trust Jesus. He's made you right with God so you can be with God. If you want a simple handle on the gospel, this is it. God, through Jesus, made you right with God so that you can be with God. That's John 3.16. John 1.12 says it this way. To all those who, who would receive him, those who believed in his name, again, there's the word believe, to trust, he gave the right to become children of God. There's your identity. So this morning, this is, this is what we're going to hang in today. We are sons and daughters who can live from his love that's been given to us, not for it. Love gets defined really weird. I want to break down these three words for you, but it's important that we define things in the Scripture a lot, but I think for some of us, the only thing we've ever done in our life is define it. And I want you to hear this. God wants you to, def- to know the truth about what His love is, but He also wants you to experience it. That's why He gave it to you. He didn't just say, hey, trust me, my love is beautiful and wonderful and great. All through the Scripture, He tells us what His love is so that we can see the truth of what it is. It's unconditional. It's pursuing. It comes after you. It doesn't stop coming after you. And you need to know the truth about what God's love love is. Defining his love is important, but listen to me. Experiencing his love is way more important. If the love of God does not live in you, you're not a son and a daughter. And so that'd be like me looking at my wife saying, honey, I love you a lot. I'm going to tell you the definition of my love for you, but I'm really not going to like give it to you because that's gross. Let me, let me make it really practical. Like, have you ever tried to define what a kiss is? Like a romantic kiss? Not when you're kissing your grandmother. That's just gross. But, like when you're romantically kissing somebody, have you ever tried to define that? Like, how, how would you define that for like somebody that, that landed from Mars, like walked up to you and they've seen you kiss your wife and like, what is that? And you're like, you're trying to explain it to them. You're like, well, you do that when you really like somebody. Well, what, what do you do? Like, if you wanted to, like, technically define a kiss, you would say it this way. Well, it's when you take the upper mandible and the lower mandible and you press them together with somebody else's mandibles and you purse your lips, your mandibles, just a little bit and you exchange saliva. <laughs> like, that's the technical science definition of a kiss. But you kind of just took all the romance out of it, didn't you? Because everybody's just like, ah. 
But do you remember the first time you experienced one of those? And it wasn't your grandmother? You remember him, ladies? Probably had hair, didn't he? Yeah. Remember her, guys? You start sweating, and you didn't even know you could sweat in those places, right? You're like, sweat, sweat rolling down the back of my neck. What is going on? Because there's something about experiencing a kiss that is way different than trying to define it, isn't it? Can I say this about God's love? Listen, you have to know the truth of what God's love is. And we're going to see it all through the Scripture here as we walk through the Scripture. But I want you to hear this. He says this, I don't want you just to understand it's unconditional. I want you to live in the unconditional love of what I have and who I am for you. And it's going to change how we live for him when we get to live in his love. And so you're going to see some things we walk through this. His love for us, you're going to see how he's calling us to live from his love for us. And so let's walk back into verse 1 again. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. There's this idea that God calls us to live from his love, but why is it so hard? The end of verse 1 tells us, the reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. It kind of seems like the writer of this, John, one of Jesus' best friends as he was on this earth, kind of just stuck a little parentheses in there, but he says this, God has called us to a new, new identity in him, and from this identity we get to experience the love of God, and you're going to get to live in a different way. But, but then John opens this parentheses up and says this, the world absolutely is going to push against this identity your whole life. And not just the world, but you. Because the world defines who you are based on what you do, like I was talking about a minute ago. God defines who you are based on what Christ has done. Now listen to these two things again. The rest of your life, you're going to wrestle with being, am I a mom first or am I a follower of Christ first? Am I, am I a man who provides first or am I a follower of Christ first? Am I a son or am I this? Am I a daughter? Am I this? And the most of the world is constantly going to be pushing on you, telling you you're something that you do, because that's what the world says. You are what you do. And Jesus says, no, you are what I've done. Now here's the question. Which of those do you believe? Because if you really believe you are what you do, you're going to struggle believing that you're son and daughter of God, and you're going to really struggle living from his love. You're going to spend most of your life living for his love because that's how this world operates. That's how most of our families operate, sadly. But God, as he changes your identity in Christ, listen, he starts to change how you love in a family. starts to change that brokenness that Adam was talking about, about how we love. And it starts to change the way we love each other from his love and not for it. We start loving people from God's love, not for them, to approve of us. It changes everything. Verse 2 says this, Now, beloved, we are God's children now. Not one day, but right now you're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. He's going to change us to be like him. And then he says this, because we shall see him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Here's one of the first ways we get to live from his love. Practically, someone, I guess maybe about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, really started telling me, John, you know, when as this whole idea of living from his love as opposed to for it is really great. I just practically, what does that look like? Here's, here's one of the first practical ways right here in the Word. You and I get to live from his purity and not for it. Most of us realize this, like one of the things that defines you as a child of God is that you desire to
to live holy lives. Now, I'm not saying that's not your soul desire. I realize we struggle with sin. There's a battle with sin. You're going to see that in this text. If you do not desire at all, if there's zero desire in you to follow Jesus, you're probably not a follower of Jesus. Can I say that that bluntly? Like, if you don't desire any holiness, and all holiness is is to follow the ways of Jesus. So if, like, everything in you is just like, man, Jesus is all right, but I, I, I don't really want to be holy. Because holy sounds like I've I got to do everything perfectly. When you're following Jesus and the ways of Jesus, you're living out his holiness. And those things are perfect. But here's how you do that. Listen, you get to live from his purity, not for it. You get to live from his holiness that he's put in you through his love, not for it. And there's a big difference. Because the Bible teaches us this, that you and I can't be holy and so this beautiful thing happens. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this, that he who knew no sin became sin on your behalf. Why? So that he could give us his righteousness. So that you and I who had no righteousness, he could give it to us. So you and I get to live from the purity of God, from the holiness of God that he's given us through the very love of Christ. Listen to these next four verses of what it looks like to live this out. This is verse 4 of 1 John. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So you know what practice is, right? It's, it's coming in a gym like this, and it's, it's putting up 1,000 shots in a week. Sometimes you're really practicing. You're putting up 100 shots in one spot, and you're putting up 1,000 shots a day. When I was in high school, man, we, my, our elbows hurt from how many shots we took. And you practice, and you practice, and you practice. And, and in some kind of physical capacity, they call that muscle memory so that you can just get used to doing it. And so you're not even thinking about this. You know, there's, the coach didn't have to say, John, follow through, because that's all I did. I mean, I, in my sleep, I sat on the bed. I had a basketball laid on my back, and I just did this in my, in my room. Just muscle memory of that, right? Some of us practice sinning. And it's muscle memory. And it's what you do. The opposite of practicing sinning is you sin, there's conviction through the Holy Spirit, there's this battle, like, oh, there's a part of you that's like, ooh, and there's a part of you that's like, yeah, and then there's a battle, because the Holy Spirit lives in you, and then there's repentance, and you grab onto Jesus, and you want to say no to this thing, and you start walking in holiness after Jesus, and it can be as simple as, you know, I, t- I told my wife that I was going to do something. She, she asked me if I did it, and I lied to her and said I did it because I didn't want to disappoint her. And then I realized, that's stupid. Why am I lying to her? I'm not 14. She's going to love me whether I did it or not. And then I tell her, like, hey, I'm, I didn't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I lied to you about that. And, and I look at Jesus, and I'm like, why did I lie to begin with? This is just dumb. And repentance happens. And so I'm not making a practice of sinning because what a practice of sinning does is cover that sin up. And then I continue to lie to her over and over and over again. You have people like that in your life that every time they talk to you, you're just thinking, I have no idea if they're ever going to tell me the truth. Because they've just made a practice of sin. Lawlessness is a word that describes the Antichrist, the one who's going to come and define what rebellion to Jesus is. So when he starts talking about practicing sin is lawlessness basically what he's saying is this it's it's a rebellious heart that doesn't want to stop being rebellious 
And the question to you this morning is this. When Christ lives in us, when he's given us his love, when he's put in us his purity, he says this, there will be this desire in you not to sin. If he's not in you, you're going to practice sin. There will be no repentance, and the heart of your heart is just rebellion towards him. It goes on to say in verse 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. There is this life that we can begin to walk away from sin. We can actually see something different about our lives, and we're going to, get, we're going to walk in that real practically in just a second. But verse 6 says this, No one who abides in him, no one who actually lives in Christ, the word abide is, is as super practical as you can ever imagine it being. It means to live with. If God has put his love in you, if he's given his love to you, his love abides in you. It lives in you. And so he says this in a real homey sort of family sort of way. The one who abides in him, the one who lives in him as a son and a daughter, doesn't keep on sinning. You don't keep practicing sin. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. He's trying to make a real simple statement here. Listen, if you're practicing a way of life that is rebellion to God, you're probably not a follower of Christ. Christ probably doesn't live in you. Now, that's really hard for, for anybody on the outside to judge that outside in. It really is. I just want you to evaluate it. Like, is your own heart in constant just rebellion to God? And let me, let me tell you what rebellion looks like. Um, for a child in a family, let's go back to the family metaphor. It's, it's this. Kids learn not to say this out loud, but when they're little, they don't. Because when they're little, they don't know any better, right? So when they're really little, they're like, mine, right, is a great word. No. And then they say things like this. You can't tell me what to do. Now, they may not say it just like that, but when they're two and three, they do it. Because they, they take the toy and they look at you and they're like, and you say, Isla, bring that back. That's Daniel's little girl. And Isla does this looks him straight in the face like, I'm going to do what I want to do, and you can't do anything about it. Now, dad, being a good, loving dad, follows her, right, and goes, right, he doesn't count one, two, he goes after her, man, because he's a loving father, it's kind of love God has for you. He doesn't count, God's not standing in heaven going, one, and if you count, I'm not making fun of you, I just want you to hear this about God in heaven, he comes after you. If you're his son or his daughter, he's not counting, he's not forgetting about you, he is following you. Now, if you're not his son and daughter, still pursuing you, but way different. As a father, we pursue, we grab, we take the toy, we discipline. All these things happen, right? As a, as a mom, that's what we do as a parent. But the heart of a child is just rebellion that just says, I'm going to do what I'm, how about this? How about you never tell me what to do is what most of us are thinking when someone starts telling us what to do. That's the heart of rebellion. And I just want to ask you this, is that your heart towards God that just says, you know what, God, I, I just really don't want you to tell me what to do. And if, and if that's the way you read the word, like, yeah, I like this, don't like this, don't like this. If there's like whole areas of your life, like 90% of it that you're like, God, I get to do what I get to do. This one thing over here I'll do because it pleases my wife. You may not be a follower of Christ. Now we all battle stuff. There's battle going on in us, for sure. My question is, is there a heart of rebellion in you that really would rather be in charge instead of the Lord? Because at some point when he lives in you, you realize, you know what? He's way better at being king than you are. Verse 7 goes on to say this, the second way we get to live from his love. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness. Now he's talking about practicing righteousness as opposed to sin. Practicing living out a right life that God calls us to. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous, as God is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning since the beginning. That's who he is, what he does, heart of rebellion, that's all he does. And the reason that the Son of God appeared, man, please don't miss this, is to destroy the works of the devil, first and foremost, namely in your life, as this gets personal to the family. And so when Jesus comes and he lives and he dies, he didn't just forgive you. He didn't just bring you into his family. And I'm going to use the family metaphor again. He didn't just bring you into the family. And have you ever been at, at, a, at a meal, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know, when there's a lot of people in the house? Some of you have big families and you go to people's houses. And there's like 42 people crammed in grandma's house. And grandma's house is really built for like 14. And everybody thinks it's cute. Oh, this is fun. And what happens is you set, you set up like four or five tables, right, at Thanksgiving or Christmas. And there's like the what I call the big people table, and it's all the patriarchs, they get to sit over here, and then there's another table. Some of y'all live in this, I see you smiling. And then there's another table, and you remember this, there was this table way over here in the corner where all the kids were put, right? And, and I was the last born in my family, baby, and so I sat with all the babies and sat way over here in the corner, and I always remember looking across over to the other side of the room thinking, I wonder what they're doing over there, it looks like a lot of fun. Because all the adults were like, ha, 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 eating their food, drinking their drinks, doing all their stuff. And the kids were just sitting over there because we didn't know each other. We didn't see each other very much. I didn't grow up in the same town with my cousins. It was super awkward. And the only reason we liked sitting there was because the yeast rolls came out of the oven that my grandmother made. So we would just chow on the yeast rolls. But it was just, a, it was just weird. Can I say this? Most of you feel like God saved you and sat you at the little kids' table in the family that it's not really a family, it's just kind of a salvation moment. Hear me when I say this. You've been saved and sat at the table with a king. You sit at the table with your father. And his whole purpose in saving you wasn't just to make you right with him, to bring you into the house, but it was to be with him. And in order for you to be with him, he has to destroy the things that have held you captive towards him, away from him. And so he tells us right here, Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. That's why he shows up in this place. So here, here's, here's how I want to say this. We get to live from Christ's righteousness. We don't get to live for it anymore. Before we come into relationship with Christ, everything we do is for the hope of pleasing God. Salvation happens in your life when you realize you can't please God with your actions. Your actions trying to please God are called self-righteousness. So God says your self-righteousness, filthy rags, stop it. Put them away. I'm going to ask you this morning, what is your greatest hope of being right before God right now? Is it the things you're doing? Is it the way you're raising your kids? Is it the is it the things you're trying not to say anymore? Is it the way you're trying to handle your money? Is it the way you're trying to plan your life? Is it the way you're trying to stop certain things that have been detrimental to your heart and your life? Or is, because all those things may be good things, but, but if those are the things that are, you're trying to do to find favor with God, to find pleasure with God, to, find ple to get God to answer your prayers, listen, all of that stuff is called self-righteousness. And you and I get to live today from His righteousness not from anything we do. And as we live from his righteousness, he says this, there's actually going to be freedom from all of the things that have held us bound. 
that there's actually now a choice you and I get to make to not sin. Whereas before Christ, all we could do was sin. Now you and I have this ability because of Christ living in us to actually follow him, living in his righteousness, practicing his righteousness. And all this goes back to this one simple statement. Are you living from his love or for it? Here's the, here's the last thing, the third thing. Verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He's reminding us, if, if you've been born of God, you don't make a practice from sinning. For God's seeds abides in him. About, oh, man, it, I don't even remember when. I'll just say this, a long time ago, I drove up on a, on a wreck, and uh, there was, the car had turned, there was people scattered, we were out in the country, and we were the first ones up on the scene, and immediately you can, if you've ever been in these situations, some of you spent your whole life doing this as policemen or firemen or nurses, and there's just something about a, a body when it's not alive anymore. And not a doctor, never played one on a TV show, but when you get close to a human body that was living is now not, there's just something very distinct. And I got out of our car and ran up and, and came up to this uh, lady who was, she wasn't breathing anymore and she wasn't alive. I could tell she was, she was gone. Went over to the, to the next person and there was a guy there and I had a friend with me and he was already over with this guy and we sat down next to this guy and he was breathing. And, and while we were with him trying to, you know, just doing whatever, we're stop, trying to stop it bleeding. They'd gone through windshields out the side of this car. We're trying to stop bleeding, do a bunch of stuff. The paramedics showed up in this small town we were from. And this guy stops breathing right when those paramedics get to where we are. And they pulled us back and they literally start life, you know, resuscitation for this guy. You know, with the, the pump into his mouth and the chest and the whole bit while you know, while they're holding this guy, and this guy who had stopped breathing, breathing, starts breathing again after about 30 seconds, and he does, and if you've ever seen this, it's crazy, there's just this loud, and what was not in his lungs, all of a sudden, like, life has been breathed back into his lungs, and he's alive again, and I don't know what happened to this young man, he got put in the ambulance, taken and driven off, but listen, he was dead, and someone breathed life into his lungs, and he was alive, can I, can I say this about you and I? Before Christ, you were dead. It says in Ephesians 2 that you were dead to sin. Because of your sin, you were dead to God, excuse me. And being dead to God means there's no life in you to respond to God. You can do good things. and you can, It's not like you can't do good things. It's just the reason you do those good things usually are for self-righteous sake. I'm trying to make myself look good before you or before God. So I can do all sorts of good things without Jesus. People start orphanages all over the world that have zero to do with Jesus. Those are good things. People pack lunches for people. Good things. But most of the reason we do those good things is because I'm trying to make God like me or you like me. When God finds you apart from him, listen, he breathes life into your dead soul and you are born. And he puts into you, hear this, Scripture says it this way, his seed, but it's his person, his spirit. This is nuts. Tonight, some of you are going to go outside because you live in the country, 
some of you, you're going to get to look up at stars that I can't see where I live because I live a little more in the city. And you're going to see thousands of stars. And I want you to remember this tonight. The God who flung those stars lives in you now. He lives in you. He's not brought you into the house, set you at the little kid's table. He lives in you. He gave you his love through his Holy Spirit, which he's poured out in you, which Daniel read at the beginning of this. And listen to what happens, and we'll end on this. His seed abides in you, and if his seed abides in you, you cannot keep on sinning. That doesn't mean you're not going to battle with sin. That doesn't mean you're not going to have wrestling matches with sin in your life because we're all going to continue to battle with pursuing the righteousness of Christ and walking into our sin. But listen, you can't keep just living in the practice of sinning where you just say, my heart's desire is to rebel against God. At some point, when the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, your heart's desire starts to change. You start desiring purity. You start desiring righteousness. And you start having this power and this love that lives within you that wants to pursue the things of God. Because it's God living in you. God has put His seed in you. And we have to stir that through worship and the Word and reminding ourselves to pursue the presence of God who lives in us. Hebrews says, draw near to the Lord and He will draw near to you. But here's what he says. Listen, you can't keep on sinning because you have been born again. Life has been blown into you through the Holy Spirit of God and now He lives in you. Verse 10, and this is evident who the children of God are. It's going to tell us two ways we get to experience the love of God here. One, you want to follow Jesus. One of the most tangible ways you're going to experience the love of God is just your desire to follow Jesus. Because that's not of you. And if there's a desire in you to follow the things of Jesus, listen, you in doing that get to experience the very love of God poured out inside you. Here's the second way. You will love the family of God. You will love brothers and sisters. And when you love brothers and sisters, you get to experience the family of God through the family of God, in the midst of the family of God, as part of the family of God. From the power of the Spirit, we get to live out the things of Christ. I'm going to sum all this up this way. And I, I don't know your family situation at all. And I know all of you in this room, all of us have issues in our family and how we love each other. All of us do. None of us love each other perfectly. But I want you to hear this. God has, through Christ, given you the ability to live in a family where you never have to ask, do I do this to get something from you, God? Or am I doing this because you've given me something? In Christ, you get to live in this truth. I love because he loves me. I love because his love lives in me. I love not to get his love, but because he loves me. I love not to get his favor, his favor's been poured out on me. I love not to get his pleasure, because his pleasure's been put in me. I love not to get his approval, because his approval is all over me in Christ. Now that's a nice truth, but when you start to experience that, like taste it, taste and see that the Lord is good, all of a sudden things start to change, because you start leaning into the Holy Spirit that's been given in you and poured into you, so that you can live through that Holy Spirit and know his love. This whole passage began with this. See how great a love the Father has given to us, 
from Psalm chapter 37, I believe, verse 4. I may have transposed those numbers, maybe 34-7, but I think it's 37-4. He says this to us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see is a very experiential deal. It's not an intellectual deal. The psalmist has been talking about that, about how good God is. But then he says this, I want you to taste and see. Those are super experiential moments for us. The Holy Spirit of God has been poured out in your life so that you can see, taste and see how good the love of God is. So many ways we get to do that. But this morning, I want to give you one simple truth as we walk into worship, more worship and communion together. Are you living from God's love or are you living for it? When you live from his love, following him becomes so different. When you live for his love, you're forever going to be feeling like you're never doing enough. And that's where some of you are sitting right now. I just don't feel like I'm doing enough, Lord. Jesus did enough. You get to live from his love. And then how you live for him will always be enough.